after getting into spirits and I thought where else do you learn about flavor so you look at everything you know tea food aroma perfume and the more I've learned the more everything else in life seems to get tastier so I'm kind of happy it happened because it's made made everything else food wise and flavor wise in my life better Welcome to the Lush Life Podcast. I'm your drinking companion, Susan Schwartz, and I bring you the how-to guide for living life one cocktail at a time. Thanks to my mother's love of martinis, the first words I spoke were shaken, not stirred, and I've been obsessed by cocktails ever since. Together, we'll learn from bartenders, brand ambassadors, distillers, and others why certain drinks are popular in certain cultures, how to make the perfect old-fashioned, when to shake and when to stir, and so much more. Hear that sound? It's time to cozy up to the bar and let the fun begin. Are you getting used to the new name? Best Sips woke up a few weeks ago with a new name, the Lush Life Podcast, to go hand-in-hand with its new website, A Lush Life Manual, the how-to guide for living life one cocktail at a time. Today we wake up in East London to discover how a former archaeologist found his way to being brand ambassador for the East London Liquor Company. Our guest, Mikey Pendergast, threw down his shovel and picked up his glass and has never looked back. Now, why don't we start with archaeology? Okay. Because <laughs> you have two family members who are archaeologists, right? Both my parents, yeah. Um, where do you want to start with archaeology? <laughs> Did you, you studied it at university, right? Yeah, studied it. I wrote a very, very lengthy and boring uh, dissertation about ceramics in Mesoamerica. Um, and I actually grew up on dig sites um, pretty much since I was six months old, actually. All over the world? Belize, um, so in Central America, which at one point was British Honduras. Uh, but both my parents, my mom was the archaeological commissioner for Belize, uh, and then my dad was doing uh, two huge digs, one at Altoon Hong, uh, where he actually discovered the Jade Head, which is on Belizean money now. Uh, and then uh, they both worked on a site called Lamanai, which is where I spent most of my time growing up. But originally Canadian, yep. right? Born in Canada, um, and I would spend like half a year in Belize, half a year in Canada. Which was kind of awesome because I got to leave school early and then come back late almost every year, which was like like a dream come true as a child. And do you speak Spanish? No, it was my first language, um, but I, my parents just didn't. I just didn't keep it up, um, so I understand it if I hear it. Um, but I'm not. I strangely don't really know how to put together a sentence in it. But I got a few friends who speak Spanish, and I do understand most of what they say. So was it I expected anyway. for you to be an archaeologist? No, actually, they both tried to talk me out of it. Uh, <laughs> um, the, to be honest, the, it used to be you'd get a big grant, you'd go to a country, and you'd do like a several-year dig and get involved in you know, the economy and, and the town or village or city, wherever you were. Uh, but it changed a lot during the, the time that I grew up with it. And these days, it's a lot more sort of what I call like micro-digs. So you get a one-year grant and go somewhere. And I think that both my parents knew that I really enjoyed the digging aspect a lot more than the writing aspect. Although I enjoy writing, academic writing can be very boring. Um, so they both tried to talk me out of it, actually. My mom wanted me to be either an artist or something creative, and my dad said, whatever you do is fine, just as long as you enjoy it. 
but don't do archaeology. <laughs> <laughs> so you were a rebel to begin with. Yeah, so of All course right. I didn't listen to anything right, they said and went into archaeology anyway. But, and um, were, did you start bartending when you were in university? Uh, no, I used to work in a cinema because uh, I spent all my money on going to movies. So to stop spending my money on movies, I just worked in one. Uh, I didn't start working in bars until I walked out of my archaeology, finished my archaeology degree, uh, and then walked, I needed money, badly. So I walked into a pub and asked for a job. Uh, and then they said yes, and I haven't actually left the industry since. Uh, Was there ever a time when you thought, oh, I'm going to go back to archaeology? Or twice, you walked into the Twice. Oh, okay. I tried to escape twice, like in a really mobster that keep giving me one more job, like two days away from retirement. Um, I tried once after getting into cocktails, I worked in this place, which I thought was amazing. Looking back, I now realize it was a completely trashy high venue cocktail bar. Wait, wait, and what city, where were we talking? This is London. Uh, London. It was on Shoreditch High Street. It was called The Last Days of Decadence. It used to, it was a weird place. It used to have like um, completely like swing dancing. Everyone would come dressed to the nines. Like um, flappers and um, gangster mobster guys upstairs. And then the basement would be uh, a burlesque show, but then it would swap and it would be a drum and bass night. So you'd literally have like weird, everyone swing dancing upstairs and then everyone basically headbanging downstairs. Um, but they did cocktails and I thought that was amazing. But when that closed down, I thought about going back, but a friend of mine um, just asked me to come help him work in a bar. In, uh, where was I? That was in Inclusion. Uh, where I met this guy Murray, who then asked me after that I was going to leave again and maybe go into programming. I don't know why. Uh, and he's like, oh, just help me open one more place. But that's not archaeology. No, no, no. Programming. No, the first time was archaeology. I was okay. like, go back and do digs. And I thought, okay, I'll do one more season of like helping out, and then next dig session I'll go back to archaeology, but it just never happened. Well, no, 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 wait. Okay, we have to back up a little bit before the last days of decadence. Um, so you were in Canada studying. No, no, here. I came here when oh. I was 15. Oh, so I've been okay. here for, since 2000. I did my, the last, I think it's GCSEs and A-levels. Did your, would your parents come as well? Yeah. All right, so yeah, you all here. moved to London. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I did, did the, right. what I would call sense. the last part of high school here, and then university here. So all my drinking culture and drinking experience and making drinking experiences is, is in London. Although I sound like this. <laughs> I've actually been here for a while. So you walked into the pub, and you said, I need a job. Yep. And were you just bitten by the bug right then? No. Uh, I worked for uh, what I would call a very mansplainy uh, South African uh, who was a complete asshole. Uh, and his He mansplained total, to a man? Just to everything. I think you can mansplain to anybody. Oh, if you I just assume whoever you're talking to doesn't know what they're saying, which when you work in a pub is weird, um, you, can, you, can, you can be a real dick if you try. Uh, for him and his incredibly frosty Russian girlfriend, and I hated it. But my parents both have great work ethics, and they were like, you know, you just started, like, stick it out, see how it goes. And that's actually quite a long, kind of interesting story, which if I ever do write a book, I will write about. But very long story short, he left, they hired a British guy, um, whose name I won't repeat, because I'm about to tell you what he did and why I ended up saying, who turned up for a week... And then it was like, Mike, here are the keys. I had no experience opening or closing bars or pubs, anything. So here are the keys. I'm going out on a, for a party tonight, and it's a really important thing. I just want you to close and open up for me. Won't be a thing. He didn't come back for like a month. Um, and in that time, I was like, well, I have to keep this business going. I don't want these, like, I don't want this to close down. So he down. literally didn't he come back. He showed up, gave me keys, and didn't explain anything. Keys to the safe and the door, and went out and purportedly snorted his way through West London for what ended up being several months. 
Um, he would come back periodically to steal it from the safe, which I only discovered when I left. Um, but when that happened, I ended up having to hire people, and I thought, well, I'm just going to hire my friends because they're going to help me out, and I did. Uh, and so it ended up being me and about seven friends. Um, was he the owner? No, it was it was a chain pub. Okay. I probably shouldn't tell you who knows. No, that's all that stuff had happened. Uh, <laughs> but um, I didn't know. I like I was still naive, and I assumed like, oh, like they're Republicans, and he probably owns it and has some stake in it, so I should keep it going. But ended up hiring my friends. We had a great time, and it was actually because of the locals who were there that we thought this is kind of fun. And then there was a cocktail bar up the road uh, called Harlem, which is a complete dive bar, but loads of fun. Um, and we ended up going there after work, and that's kind of where we started to fall in love with the cocktail culture. And because the industry culture in the pub was so much fun, and then the cocktail culture was like this extra step to it, that's kind of when me and my friend Yi started getting the bug to like, oh, maybe this is something to pursue rather than just like filling time between me not having money as a student and then potentially having money. I haven't reached that part yet. The having money thing is still <laughs> eluding me somehow. But I think you're doing okay yeah. so far. Now, Not so good. you are at so you had Harlem. You're at the pub, and you've decided this is this is for you. So how did you even know where to to go about your next you know the next step? Um, kind of serendipitous, actually. Um, one of my friends, uh, his name is Alex, who worked in Harlem, went to work in a place uh, in Central. Uh, it was like really banker heavy. The kind of place you see in movies where they like they have the stereotypical banker who's like a completely dismissive jerk. It was that place. Um, but the working there was fun. But I had gone to work on a film in Mongolia um, for a month with a friend. Three months. Came back like, oh, I kind of want to get back into bartending. You were the best bartender I knew because I can work with you. So he hired me as a bar back. Uh, and then, yeah, I worked with him for a while. And then when he left... I met another guy through him named Tom, and he's the guy who got me into Last Days. And he was like, now if you want to start making drinks, this is the place. So it was kind of like a weird, serendipitous, I don't know what you call it, like leapfrogging from place to place. Which I guess is how it happens for most people, I assume. Yeah, definitely. What part of it did you like the most as you were um, beginning? As I was beginning, it was the fact that there was a lot of technique. I really like learning new skill sets. It's, in fact, it's my pastime. I recently learned locksmithing, uh, lock picking, because I was like, I don't know how to do that. Let's pick up a book and figure it out. Uh, and it was cool because I never, even in popular culture, you see, like even with Tom Cruise and cocktail, and even on TV, it always comes off and it's always kind of commercial and cheesy. And then I realized like there are actually people who take alcohol as seriously as people who take food, and I had never even considered that. Like you see a lot of the the nonsense and advertising with the booze industry, which I think is safe to say because I. I work for a company that makes booze, and I'm sure half the stuff I say is nonsense, but I don't even realize it. Uh, but to see people who treated it very seriously, was it kind of struck a chord with me. I thought, oh, I want to learn what they know, so that maybe I can appreciate stuff the way they're doing it. And that was the first thing. People are the second. I know everyone complains about people, but I've been very fortunate in that I've been lucky enough to work in places where I've met some insanely cool people, um, who I'm not just friends with over the bar. I now have several, well, I would consider to be close friends that I've met just working in bars. So it was, it was first flavor, then people, and now flavor again, because flavor is, is the most important thing in life, I think, potentially. I guess if the drink doesn't taste good. Yeah. Well, I mean, after getting into spirits, and I thought, where else do you learn about flavor? So you look at everything. You know, tea, food, aroma, perfume. And the more I've learned, the more everything else in life seems to get tastier. So I'm kind of happy it happened, because it's made, made everything else, food-wise and flavor-wise, in my life better. So... 
Well, let's talk about your role here at the um, East London Liquor Company. So you, you worked at all these bars and getting better, learning your skill set. Yeah. And so how did you find yourself here in East London? So I was working in a place in Angel, um, which myself and my friend, who I mentioned briefly, he, um, had set up to be sort of, uh, which I, it's going to sound cliche now, but back then it was still kind of new. We were doing a lot of um, like um, pre-batching classics. So they would come in, like, I would just, my favorite was Negroni because we were the, some of the first guys to get those triangular Campari bottles. So we would just have an excuse to drink Campari and so did them refill them with Negronis. But we did a lot of um, what I would call like gimmickly, gimmicky but with integrity, um, pre-batching, and then everything else was homemade. Uh, and a lot of fermentation, which is now catching on today, which I'm quite happy about. So we had like fermented lime cordial, mm-hmm. um, different styles of wine, etc. Were you coming with the, uh, sorry, were you coming up with these ideas? Every, every single recipe was um, original. Mostly, if I'm being completely honest, because the guy who owned the restaurant had no idea what we were doing, and he gave us, he was like, oh, you need you need, citru- you the keys like, oh, you need citric the- acid and stuff. Like, yeah, we totally do. We need an ice cream maker and some soy lecithin. What for? I, I could explain it, but you wouldn't get it, and he used to buy it all. Was this the and first was, time you started making drinks yourself? I've As made, in making uh, ingredients? I had made bitters before, because mm-hmm. ch- chilies are one of my first loves, and I had made really good chipotle chili um, bitters, which are backed up with like um, guayillo chilies, so kind of like licorice but also mm-hmm. spicy. But I made that because um, with cayenne chilies, because they had the most, I forget what the addictive chemical is called. So my idea was I'll make a cocktail that you have once, and you like it twice, and then you're hooked. And it ended up kind of working. It was a, a favorite of a few, a few of my regulars, but... From there, I then went to this place where I thought, oh, let's start doing more of that. And that's really where me and you just learned how to make pretty much everything. Uh, there, was, there was a lot of stuff online then, not as much as there is now. Um, but I don't know why. Maybe just because we were working like 90-hour weeks. We just didn't bother. So we just would buy stuff and try it and make it. Most of the ferments, if I'm completely honest, were complete accidents. It was like, oh, this tastes good and is safe. Great, this is an ingredient now. Let's use this. <laughs> But yeah, so was, I was working there, and then um, a friend of mine recommended me to Alex, uh, who owns this place, because he wanted to basically have that style of bar here. He wanted this to be, because it's a distillery bar, the idea was the gym would be making most of the money, and the bar is going to sort of be like a show pony for the, which is a good comparison for me to draw, because there's a horse on our bottle. That was completely accidental. And it's, this is an old glue factory, right? this is an old right? glue factory. Well done, brain. Uh, <laughs> you just do it inherently. You can't yeah. help yourself. It's a gift. You right. know, flows to me. What can I say? <laughs> Um, so yeah, they, they asked me to come here and do that, and so I did. Uh, and then... How long ago was that? It was three years. And I never wanted to leave the bar, actually. So somewhat begrudgingly, they started to pull me away, be like, go here and sell gin, go here and tell people how gin is made. Uh, I'm enjoying it now. I'm now 32, and my knees and back. I can now complain about them with some accuracy and integrity, because they are starting to fall apart. Uh, so I'm really happy now doing the, the ambassador job. But right now I'm kind of like, it's weird because you, you'll see other companies and a lot of other companies are like these much bigger machines. And so a brand ambassador is quite generally someone who just goes and talks about the stuff that's produced. Um, here it's weird. I'm, like I, I, I've helped out with distilling. I help with bottling, although we don't have to anymore. Uh, I do trainings. I still work on the bar. I'm actually working on the bar this evening to cover, um, cover us because we're short-staffed. I do consultancy, so if anyone picks us up, because we don't have money to, to give retros or anything, uh, if anybody needs a menu re- rewritten or new menus, or they need continual trainings throughout the year, or they want to tweak a concept or make their own 
syrups and cordials. Uh, they can literally just come and ask, and I'll just give out whatever they want. Which was scary at first, but I will say one of the things, if any other bartenders are listening to this, you kind of build up this, this group of recipes, like, these are my secret weapons. And I was really worried to start giving those away for free, but once I did, it's like killing your darlings. I think it's a writing, writing yes, convention. Yes, it is. <laughs> and the minute I was like, that's not my secret anymore. i got to find new ones. It like I immediately got better at everything, which was, I think, if that's okay to say without sounding too arrogant. Um, so that, that's kind of what I'm doing now, sort of just being like a, like a Swiss Army knife for this place, in a way. And, and the East Liquor Company, can you East London Liquor Company? Can you tell us a little bit about the story? Its story? Yeah. Um, so we, like I said, it started three years ago. Um, it's the brainchild. So of, you uh, were here at the beginning. Yeah. It was originally me and this guy Tom, a gentleman named Jamie, who's left us, um, just professionally. He's still alive, or so I hope. Uh, and then um, Alex. So it was Alex's brainchild. He wanted to start. He'd worked in bars for about eight years and wanted to actually rather than promote someone else's product, have his own. And so he found Tom, um, fresh out of university, uh, who had studied, uh, oh, what's it called? The thing, it's not biology, not molecular biology. You got me out of the literature major. Anyway. <laughs> Organic chemistry? Yes. All right. Thank you. Uh, and then myself to run the bar and his friend Jamie, who was going to sort of oversee the venue. And basically we got, they did some... Uh, trial, well, you get to sort of make your recipe outside of land before you can apply for the selling licenses here. But the idea and the recipes that we went through when we opened, the whole sort of ethos was craft, craft gin, in inverted commas, it just started sort of happening to people. And it was at that time just an excuse to have an expensive bottle and charge people like 42 quid for it. And the idea was let's make like a bartender's best friend and hopefully everyone else's best friend. Let's make the best gin that we possibly can at the lowest price because usually when this kind of thing happens, like it like happened with the beer craze, there will be a thing where everyone will start doing it and they'll all start doing the same style of thing. But the only people who were left are the people who were actually doing it because they wanted to do it well, which I think is very, very true if you look at mm -hmm. beer, especially in London. So we thought, forget riding the wave. Let's just do what we want to do and hope that lasts out. And we ended up having three recipes. One, we were always going to do a classic London Dry style. So you pick up like a... Even if you pick up the Savoy cocktail book and it says London Dry Gin. Right. That classic flavor profile. We wanted to do one premium, but we actually disagreed about the recipes when it, when it first... When they first came in. I liked the first one, along with my friend Yi, and then Tom and uh, Alex liked the second one. So we put them both out, which is why the branding is so similar on them. Um, but yeah, they, they kind of just... Did you have a big fight over that? Not really. Really, like, oh, I just like, like that one. Like, okay, let's just. Let's just do both. Alex, like, let's just put both out, and whichever one wins, we'll just keep it. Um, and it's been long enough now that we're just going to have all three. Um, but it's it's been nice because it's kind of worked. Like even when I was pretty much the entirety of the sales team, all I would do is go into bars and be like, "Do you like this? We're cheaper than you think. Um, try it." I don't think I ever ever didn't win in a taste test, actually. I don't want to jinx myself, because if I ever have to do it again, I don't want to be like, damn, that was the first one. You already did it. You don't need to do it again. Um, and yeah, and that was kind of it. So that's, that's how we started. Just like, that's, we all know how bars work. Let's make something that we think is a good tool to have. And then also, the kind of thing, the best thing I think about our London Dry is if you go to a house party, you can spend 20 quid on a good bottle of wine, or a really good bottle of gin. And like, that's now like a cool option. You can't really do that all the time with spirits. Especially, I think, at the level that we're making it, which... I mean, if you disagree, you're totally entitled to. This flavor is completely subjective. But I think we're going to hit that mark quite right. 
Uh, and the other thing was we also were like, we're going to make gin. What else? And the answer, of course, was whiskey. But I think the really cool thing, and this might sound like, I don't know, propaganda, but it, it's not. We didn't set up to make whiskey and started making gin in the meantime, which a lot of people do. And not to talk down about any gin like, or distillery where that's happening, but it was almost sort of like we almost missed the beat and we're like, oh, let's make gin. Oh, wait, whiskey too. Also whiskey. So one of the coolest things now is what we're distilling is going into, because our laws are slightly more lax than uh, Scotland and America, which is saying very little because they're incredibly tight there. We've got stuff like chestnut woods, um, ex-red wine, um, new American oak, Hungarian oak, Irish. Like we, can, we can basically get our hands on whatever we want and see where things are going. Uh, and our head whiskey distiller, Andy, has got some insane stuff coming out. But we don't have to, like, next year when it legally becomes whiskey, we have to release it because our first plan was gin. So we're sort of like, when this, when this stuff's ready, we'll start throwing it out, because this is going to be, again, like our, our show pony, if you will. It'll be great to taste the ones with the different woods. Yeah, I mean, so, some of them we've actually learned a lot in the past couple of years. There's some cool things about wood that, I always assumed that if a whiskey had a really old age on it, it just meant it wasn't ever good to sell young, and that's why. I know there's a lot of prestige around, like, higher ages, but once you learn about distilling and aging, you're like, oh, I don't know, what's the point at this, at this age? But we've been learning that things like chestnut, because um, all the grappa producers who we bought them from, like six months is what you need. And they're right for grappa. And there's this weird period where it gets like incredibly like, it's like when you bite a popsicle stick too hard and you get that like weird yeah, yeah. woody, splintery, like unpleasant flavor. But then once it's in for a few more months after that happens, it goes back down to like coffee. It's, it's really cool actually. When will that be ready? Well, we're definitely going to have our first launch of what we're going to call London Rye uh, next year, so 2018. Um, we're actually installing right now, so why the place is a mess, which I forgot to apologize for. Uh, we're installing... Don't worry, they can't see it on here. True, that's very <laughs> It's actually very beautiful right now. It's serene. Um, we're installing a new stripping still in the back, so we up production have a lot of our London Rye. So we're kind of to the point where we're happy with the mash bill. So 2018 will have some released, enough that you can buy it. Um, but obviously the price will be higher than it's going to be when we have enough of our, our stuff to sort of put it all out there. But I'd say 1920, we'll have like a regular standard thing coming out. We're always going to be experimenting. I mean 2020, I hope. Yeah. Right. Because yeah, 19 yeah. is a while back. Yeah. No, right. <laughs> 1920. It's a time machine actually. We're going to go back in time and reverse age stuff. Damn. So that means I can't have one right now. Uh, he may have some sample you can try in the back. We'll have to check. Oh, should we go check now? Uh, we could do, yeah. Why not? All right, or maybe some of your jam. How about both? Okay, sounds good to me. Cool. Mikey made me a few cocktails in East London Liquor Company's incredible distillery and bar. Order our cocktail of the week, the south of the river, my man, while you're outside on their terrace enjoying the sun and having a bite to eat. You need some time to make this cocktail if you want to get it right. First start with East London Liquor Company's Demerara Rum and some Taiwanese Oolong Tea. Use 14 grams of tea to a 700 ml bottle and let it cold infuse for 2 hours, then strain out the leaves. Mikey says it's important not to press the leaves or you get the tannins in the rum. Once you've made that, then you're ready to make our cocktail. Add into a mixing glass 50 ml of the tea-infused rum you just made, then 10 ml of Japanese umeshu plum liqueur, then 3 dashes of Miracle Mile pecan bitters. 
Stirn down over ice and serve neat in a cocktail glass. Then garnish with jasmine tea buds. This and all the recipes you hear on the podcast can also be found at alushlifemanual.com, where you'll also find all the ingredients in our shop. Thanks to Mikey for sharing a few of his stories with us. I know he has more, I can tell. Next week, I finally got to interview the bartender at my parents' local restaurant in Bucks County, Pennsylvania. She's not a mixologist in a cutting-edge bar in the middle of the city, but that doesn't mean she doesn't take her job incredibly seriously. Her MO is welcoming her guests, and she succeeds with panache. Until next time, bottoms up. Thanks for listening to the Lush Life Podcast, the sister of a Lush Life Manual. For more information and links to everything you heard, plus a bit more, please visit alushlifemanual.com. Always remember the wise words of Oscar Wilde, all things in moderation, including moderation. And always drink responsibly. Okay, I said that last part. Theme music is by Stephen Shapiro and used with permission. Lush Life is produced by Evo Terra, and I'm your hostess, Susan Schwartz. I'll see you at the bar.